You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm Sara Pantuliano, I'm a managing director here at ODI, and I am absolutely delighted to welcome you all to this event. This is the launch of our latest research on uh, um, life under Taliban governance. At ODI, we've been working on Afghanistan for more than two decades, and particularly in the last 10 years, done a lot of work on understanding how to engage with, uh, uh, with the Taliban. What has been led by by my colleague Ashley Jackson, who is on the panel and is the author of the latest report. So we are really thrilled to have such a fantastic panel to discuss our um, latest uh, um, report. And we could have not asked for a better chair <laughs> to, to lead this discussion today. She needs no introduction, it's Liz said, BBC International Chief Correspondent. Liz, over to you, we're really thrilled to have you here. Okay, welcome. Testing, testing. Yeah. Welcome to everyone, Koshomadit, uh, to all of our Afghan friends and everyone else here who is just a little bit Afghan, because many of you have all worked in Afghanistan for many years. And we gather here today for a session called Life Under the Taliban. And I think it's fair to say that none of us here, most of all the Afghans, would have thought that nearly 17 years on, after the fall of the Taliban in 2001, that we would be gathering here to discuss life under the Taliban again. But equally, none of us here, and again, especially the Afghans, would have expected to see the extraordinary scenes during the the Afghan Eid ceasefire. Two unilateral ceasefires from the Afghan government, from the international forces, and from the Afghans. And those astonishing scenes of Afghan Taliban coming into the city, leaving their guns at the out on the outskirts of the city, soldiers and Taliban fighters embracing each other, eating together, praying together, exchanging roses. And I think for those of us who were far away, you could feel on social media that a collective sigh of relief and happiness, a tantalizing glimpse of peace. And yet, perhaps not surprisingly, the ceasefire ended and there was a Taliban attack in Baghdis at the very army base where just shortly before Afghan soldiers and Taliban had embraced. So there's still a long way to go. But there is a topic to discuss about life under the Taliban. I have to say that the BBC, you, many of you may know, had done their own report earlier this year. Uh, my colleagues are here with the BBC. It's a little bit of a BBC Zai, you know, here today. Our own tribe had to come to this Afghan, um, which, which said one of the, the top conclusion was that the BBC was openly active, as they put it, in some 70% of Afghanistan. And today we gather for some important new research by Ashley's action of the ODI and her team of Afghan colleagues who have put together more of the details of what it is when we say that there is Taliban control in more than half of Afghanistan, in areas of health, in terms of schools, pol social policy, justice, that the Taliban are not just there, they're actually governing or at least are in control of some, some parts of Afghan lives and sometimes working with the Afghan government. 
So we have a very good panel with us here today to discuss this, and we have all of you who are with us here, and those of you who are joining us online. I think Shukriya cannot hear us. Is that right, Shukriya? I think she's having a hard time. Let's check. Shukriya, can you hear us? All the way to yes, Oslo. Yes. Welcome. Shukriya Baraksai is joining us. Many of you know Shukriya Baraksai. The story of Shukriya Baraksai is a little mini history of, of Afghanistan. She's a former journalist when the Taliban fell. She was in the lawyer, constitutional lawyer Jurga in 2003, ran for parliament in 2005, becoming one of the first female MPs was in charge of the defense committee at the Afghan parliament and then sadly in 2014 was attacked by the Taliban. People died but fortunately Shukriya survived and less than a year later she met for face-to-face -face talks with the Taliban in Oslo where she is now the Afghan ambassador. She would prefer to be in Afghanistan but there are still risks in Afghanistan. So thank you very much for joining us uh, from Oslo. Also with us, Mina Baktash, my colleague who heads the BBC Afghanistan stream. Mina is also a very dear colleague. We've covered many stories together since the fall of the Taliban. She's done important documentaries and interviews with everyone from the Afghan king to President Karzai. And your, your most recent one, which I loved, was about Afghan lullabies which is an important part of Afghans uh, growing up. Francesc Vendrell, a very old friend, young man, but very old friendship with all of us. Uh, he, you will know him from having been the special representative of the UN Secretary General in Afghanistan before the fall of the Taliban and continued after, and then became the very special, special representative of the EU. He also took part in negotiations with the Taliban in those very early days. And that, of course, was a very historic moment before the, the onslaught against the Taliban and then after. Ashley Jackson has worked in Afghanistan for Oxfam to 2009-2011 and has a decade of experience doing research in Afghanistan. We're going to hear from you in a moment. Mark Bowden is also here. He was also in Afghanistan from 2012 to 2017 as a deputy special representative there and also engaged with talks with the Taliban both outside Afghanistan and inside Afghanistan. So we have Afghans who are with us, and in the front row, our colleague Daoud Azami, who is one of the BBC's uh, top journalists working across the BBC's both English and Afghan services, and Pashto as well, I suppose, Uzbek, all the others, doing research most recently on the great game in Afghanistan, all the new outside powers uh, who are now involved in Afghanistan, the rise of so-called Islamic State, but also the Taliban too. And we have all of you with your questions and also your experience. Let's begin, though, with you, Ashley Jackson. First of all, congratulations on this important new report. And I urge all of you to, to read this report. It has very, very important uh, details. But can you tell us, is there an overall, the, you know, the BBC report talked about openly active. How would you describe in detail the, this governance that the Taliban are involved with and, and, and how far-reaching is it? of openly active, what, what does that mean? Um, and, and that's precisely what the research seeks to look at, is if you're living in one of these areas, how is your life affected by the Taliban? Um, and it ranges from areas that have, you know, a white flag openly flying uh, representing the Taliban, where you have almost no government presence, to living in a city like Kunduz or Lashkagar, where the Taliban move openly, where I was in the bazaar in Kunduz city, and Taliban letters sort of uh, are openly pasted in the, in the chalk. And, uh, so 
it's a range of measures um, and it varies, but ultimately it's, it's a misnomer to call it shadow governance. It's not separate from the Afghan government. Often what we found, particularly with health and education, was that the Taliban co-opted and redirected the state. So with education, the Taliban has its own education monitors that go into schools um, that modify the curriculum, that take out certain objectionable subjects. Um, they also make sure that teachers are showing up on time. Uh, this has been a chronic problem in Afghanistan is sort of corruption in uh, basic services. And what the Taliban has done quite cleverly is sought to um, capitalize on state weakness to show, hey, we can make teachers show up. We can improve the quality of these services. We are capable of governing. And in what percentage of the districts across Afghanistan would you see what you, an extent of involvement in governing that you would call it a significant control by the, and participation by, by Taliban? Um, well, I didn't go to every single yeah, problem. No, no, no. But what did you <laughs> but, mean? But overall, yeah. what would you say? Overall, yeah. I mean, you have, on one hand, you have the BBC account, which indicates that in 70% you would find some measure of Taliban control or influence. On the other hand, you have maps from SIGAR and from Operation Resolute Support, which say the Taliban only, quote unquote, control maybe 14% of districts. Um, I think it's closer to the BBC account. I mean, that's certainly what I saw. In one of um, the districts I looked at, I mean, basically, if you drive a half an hour from Kabul in any direction, you'll be an in an area that is under some degree of Taliban influence. So it is that widespread, that far-reaching. And we, I mean, we can go into further detail in our discussion today, but of course, if you mention the word Taliban, everyone immediately has an image. And it's not just an image, it's the reality that we saw during Taliban rule, which is a very harsh, very restrictive Afghan rule, especially when it came to Afghan girls and Afghan women. Is this a new Taliban, or is this the old Taliban uh, approaches to the, to the people the same? Well, I think they've changed. Um, I think what you also have to recognize, I mean, a lot of the people who helped me, a lot of the young men I interviewed who were with the Taliban, I mean, they were children um, under the, the previous Taliban regime, and they live in an era of smartphones and, and all these kinds of things. Televisions so, and... Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so they both, you know, benefit from and enjoy many of the freedoms, um, watching Tolo or whatever else, mm -hmm. um, that happened after 2001, but they've also suffered. Um, a lot of the villages I looked at, you know, there was a familiar narrative of uh, things were going well, and then all of a sudden, the international military forces, the Americans, decided that there were Taliban in the village. There was an airstrike, there was a night raid, and then the village turned against the government. And this is a story I heard again and again. So I think what you have to kind of remember at the local level is that the local Taliban are people who feel like they're on the defense, that they've been attacked. Um, and they feel like joining the Taliban or supporting the Taliban is a way of protecting themselves. It's not always something that they feel is ideal, um, and they might disagree with certain Taliban ethos, um, but as part of the conflict, this is which side they find themselves on in, in order to survive. Um, I think the Taliban has changed its stance on key issues, but I also think there's a danger in saying it's a new, more moderate Taliban. I think we have to look at what they do on the ground um, rather than what they say or what other people say. And what we found was, okay, they had more moderate attitudes towards women, but that shift was, was very small. And there were certainly areas, I mean, I didn't find a single girl's secondary school open uh, in an area of Taliban control. Uh, they were allowed to go 
up until the age of puberty. Um, but in Helmand, one of the Taliban commanders joked with me. He said, sort of, after third grade, they graduate. That's when they get married. Um, so I, th I think those kinds of things prevail. Certainly, there are attacks on the media. Um, other issues I, I think we have to be cautious of. We'll discuss it a bit more, but I just want to, to point out as well some of the interesting things that you pointed on in your research, because I think uh, education is one thing that we most identify with the Taliban because it was seen as the most backward of their policies. And yet you correctly point out that we cannot just point a finger at the Taliban for the failures in, in education. Let me let me read that you, what you put. It is difficult to find a school in Afghanistan with a building or perimeter wall. Four in ten, four in ten of Afghanistan schools have no building at all. And one in 12 are ghost schools that don't exist at all. So you also say that this is a failure of the aid community, the international support, because there was a lot of money and a lot of attention <coughs> went into education in Afghanistan. And you, know, you mentioned the, you know, the fact that there is no secondary school for girls, but that's also because there are no female teachers, there's no security for the girls, and that there's certain things about Afghan traditions which may not be, which we can't connect solely to the Taliban. Yeah, and I think especially when it comes to girls' education, it's a perfect storm of a collective failure on all sides. Um, of course, there was widespread fraud and corruption in, in building of schools and hiring of teachers. Of course, there was unbelievable progress as well. I mean, we should acknowledge that. Um, but when it comes to sticking up for, for women's right to education, I think this is a failure hmm. that we can pin as much on donors as we can on, on the Afghan government and on the Taliban. Um, and one of the things that the report really urges is that you know, the international community pays for all of the basic services in Afghanistan. Um, this is the reality on the ground. There are things that can be done. Um, and there's a responsibility to engage with the, this reality, to try and influence um, Taliban governance, to continue to try and fight against corruption and address some of these issues. Because hmm. that is the other level of questioning, is how does the aid community, how do outsiders, how do Afghans interact with this, this, this layer of Afghan participation, governance, whatever you want to call it, in a growing number of districts uh, across Afghanistan. And we'll, we'll, I'll come back to you later, and it'll come up in the questions. We want to bring in you, Ambassador Badaksai, now from Oslo. And I hope you've been able to hear some, uh, in fact, all of what Ash, uh, Ashley had to say about some of her findings. You met the Taliban face-to-face -face in 2015. Even since then, they've changed again. There's a new leadership, new outside powers. But when you met them, would you say that this to you was a, a new Taliban, a Taliban which was evolving and emerging into the kind of Taliban which would have a place in the future of the country? You're smiling, which says a lot, of, or grimacing, should I say. Um, please. Yeah, thank you. Um, allow me to first say what is the Taliban situation today from my point of view. First of all, I believe if I compare 2018 with 2002, uh, this time I echo Ashley that uh, Taliban is controlling more areas than 2002. And it means um, they got more power and somehow more supporters, unfortunately. Um, this time, uh, for instance, in 2002, they was just not be disappeared, but they was been like keeping quiet inside and outside of Afghanistan. But this time they come with a very strong uh, political purpose, um, uh, I believe that in 2018, Taliban got more recognition by international world compared to the 2002. 
so same, they got more international support. For instance, Iran in Russia was not supporting Taliban in 2002, but today they are really like uh, to go and somehow China also shows some kind of sympathy and empathy with them. Um, beside of that, the, the way they are producing uh, violence is, is also different than the time while they was ruling the country or uh, a part of the country, uh, if I compare 2002 with 2018. Um, uh, these are something different. Uh, that's, well, clearly say it's not yesterday Taliban. Uh, today Taliban are much different. Uh, I remember while they was ruling Afghanistan, taking a photo or finding with someone, even family photo, it was a big crime. But today they themselves are going and posing and taking selfies. So this is uh, this is not a very small change. I believe this is with such a kind of mentality, it's a big change. When it comes uh, to our meeting with uh, Taliban, uh, we've been a group of women, only Afghan women, and it was uh, not really easy for a person like me to go and sit and face them. Uh, but um, the way they respect and the level of their tolerance, how harsh we women was, um, and how we raised the reality in a kind of the way we slam on their face uh, and we criticize uh, their policies. Um, I think um, it was unbelievable, uh, but uh, they show a kind of, uh, let's say, respect. They accept uh, that they were not been kind during their time with women and all when it comes not only women, generally with human rights and civil rights of Afghan citizens. Uh, but to be honest and to be frank, it's not yesterday Taliban anymore. Hmm. They are more wider. Uh, they are more unfortunately powerful and uh, they are controlling more areas. And um, but the, the, the positive point is like this time they show a little bit of flexibility, particularly these uh, three days uh, ceasefire. And I believe that uh, this uh, three day ceasefire was just was a um, very wide message uh, from the nation that they are fatigued from war. Uh, but the nature of the Taliban, uh, I don't think so. It will be changed easily. Allow me to say uh, 1992 uh, uh, and 2018, 1992 when the Mujahideen came, uh, their physical look was exactly the same, like having long hairs and uh, unclean clothes and carrying guns. And the Taliban also came in 2018, same. Except uh, at that time, Mujahideen was not been welcomed by the other soldiers. Uh, but this time the soldiers hug each other and the people welcome them. I hope they understand the value of uh, this, uh, uh, I can say, generosity of uh, uh, those whom they host the Taliban during these uh, three days of Eid. But I believe peace process in Afghanistan is not that easy as we can say with a ceasefire. It will come or it will make on. A peace should be um, not only uh, peace, but it should be with justice. It should come with a constructive talk. It should be with understanding among um, our neighbors. And it should be a common uh, value for those 
players uh, in Afghanistan, political players, I mean, insider and outsider. Of course, it's very difficult for some uh, inside Afghanistan political parties or fractions to accept the Taliban because they believe that this uh, cake of power will be shared among so many and they will make up less uh, piece of it. But uh, we have to accept the reality. I was very surprised uh, because I thought Taliban is just a minority and uh, we can kick them out of the country. That was like a long ago I was carrying this idea. Uh, but uh, I realized, no, they are part of the reality. And it's better to accept rather than neglect them. And uh, it's better to include them rather than exclude them. The, the, I always remember one line in the in the book by um, Ambassador Mullah Zaif, who was the ambassador in Pakistan, and he had this line in which he said, the Taliban did not have the education to make a deal with the world. In other words, our understanding was so limited about education, about governance, about democracy, about technology. And of course, uh, Mullah Zaif is one of the Taliban who then came to Kabul. We call them the reconciled uh, Taliban. But all of what you're saying and what your research is showing, that they're changing a bit. But the question is, how much? And Shukriya, for just another question to you. Given that we're seeing them, they're not in a, there's only, there's not a little, or a few Taliban, as you say. They're actually spread across many districts of Afghanistan and playing a role in governance in Afghan society. What implications does that have for peace talks if they ever take place? It's really going to have to be a, a sharing of power and two sides coming closer together, or many sides coming closer together. I think this time we, didn't, we don't need to talk about two sides. We have to bring around this peace table everybody mm. and everyone. Otherwise, if someone was been missing, if we like them or not, despite of they believe democracy or not, despite of they will accept women as a reality or not. And I like women also to be around the table, not only on the menu. So that, that will make sense. And I believe that the Taliban will may, if all their resources will be stopped, and if there's a commitment by our neighbors, I'm sure they will accept the peace talk. Um, I believe that Afghanistan don't have any more the capacity to carry on these uh, decades of war more and longer and longer. And we have to be worried about the new phenomena of Daesh in Afghanistan. And it will be very dangerous if Taliban turn their face to the Daesh. I think it will be out of control, not only for Afghans, but it will be out of control for everyone. But allow me to say that Taliban is not anymore. Uh, well, somehow they show they are a very organized group uh, because just by one ceasefire announcement, uh, they, they show that they were not killed and they will stop. But it seems to me, again, the suicide attack, which is Daesh or ISIS claim in uh, Nangarhar province during the eight days, it also can be alert that uh, might be their group of Taliban, which is they may not be happy um, or they may not be the one that accept the negotiation or they may not be ready to sit down around the table for the peace talk. But one thing was very clear is Taliban ready to talk with the government of Afghanistan or with the United States of America. And just recently, I think the state also showed a little bit that they are willing to talk with the Taliban as well. I hope um, Taliban will not be recognized as a legitimate uh, Afghan government 
they, the government of Afghanistan have the legacy and the power and the authority uh, to go further for this uh, inside Afghan peace talk or Afghan lead peace talks. Good. Thank you so much, Shukriya. We'll come. We'll come back to you in a moment, um, Ambassador Baraksai. Mina Baktash, the, the BBC put out their report, and there was a reaction to it. What do you think are the implications for Afghanistan going forward? The fact that it's a reality now that the Taliban are, as to use the phrase, was openly active, mm -hmm. with a role in the li the daily lives of a m more and more Afghans. Uh, <laughs> as an Afghan, I do see a bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Um, Somehow I do see some sort of uh, tendency towards peace talks. I don't know if peace, because as Shukri John rightly said, peace is not an easy thing in Afghanistan, and it's not never been just two sides. There are all a good number of sides that they all have to be around the table. When on my Facebook during the Eid, I shared that this is a historic day, bilateral ceasefire, one comment said, I wish it was to just two sides and bilateral. Mm -hmm. it, it has to be multilateral. Mm -hmm. That is one thing. The other thing is, as a journalist, uh, I mean, uh, my colleague Azami is here and another colleague over there, and we have been monitoring. There are good things, positive points, negative points on both sides. And Ashley rightly said, for example, the education of girls, it is all over the country, it's a problem. And there are the cultural problems all over, all over the country. The women's rights are all, all over the country. Whether it's Taliban areas or government areas or no government or to Taliban To be honest, I, I can tell you that uh, even if you ask the leftists main in Afghanistan in their mind, regarding women, they are Talibs. Mm. I'm so sorry to say that, but that is a reality. And on the, on the side of the recognition, it's not about recognizing somebody as a government. I, I believe if Taliban is being recognized as what they are, actually, I mean, what the three days of each showed what they are, if uh, international community that I'm seeing that they are going towards it, they recognize it, what they are, that will be fine. I mean, it's not the first or it's not going to be the last that the government is making peace with a uh, movement or a party or whatever. It doesn't have to be two governments or two parallel entities. It, 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 they can be just as they call themselves, Junbesh or movement or whatever. So. Mm. Because what, um, one of the things you pointed out, Ash, in your research was that the Taliban have moved from being a, a more like a traditional, traditionalist organization to being a more of a modern Islamist organization, which has which a very conservative interpretation of Islam, but one that is part of the more modern world, perhaps very conservative for most of us here and for many Afghans. But do you think that new Taliban would have ideas that would be that most Afghans would be comfortable with? Perhaps not in some parts of the Kabul or, but that across the country? The, the Afghan Islam has always been moderate. Mm. And what we, have see, we are seeing right now, it is something imported to Afghanistan. Mm. And I mean, nobody can deny that it was, even one of the leaders of Afghanistan was saying that when he said that I'm a Mujahid, the international leaders, Westerners, they said, no, but your clothes are not like Mujahid. They couldn't believe that an Afghan could be dressed like a Westerner. Mm. If we have to uh, basically reclaim the identity of Afghans and let them to do that, mm. and let them just stop um, basically injecting, I don't know, uh, 
genetically modifying Afghans. Don't do that, please. Let them grow organically and let them make their own peace. But it's not an easy thing mm -hmm. to do. But that, as, I, as you, uh, I mean, if you are asking me if there is a, a way for peace, at the end, it has to be. Mm. There yeah. is no everlasting war anywhere. We all know that even without any genetic modification, the Afghans are a super strain on their own. So naturally super strain of Afghans. Um, there's the issue of how the Afghans will deal with this growing Taliban presence and participation. But there's also a question for the international community. And I think there has been a sense, I think, uh, Your Honor, correct me if I'm wrong, that a sense in which the international community didn't know how to deal with Afghans when they were in charge in the 90s and how to deal with them afterwards. Then, says Vendel, you were you know, in Afghanistan and Pakistan during that time. With the benefit of hindsight, did the international community deal with the Taliban in a way which have, would have brought them closer rather than pushing them back? Of course, that was a very different time and it was a very different Taliban. Well, um, it's very hard to, to, to respond. Um, one thing was happening in the, uh, under the Taliban, and that was the presence of Osama bin Laden. And that colored uh, the, the way the international community looked at Afghanistan. Um, on the other hand, I did talk to, to them regularly. Uh, I found them relatively well disposed. Um, uh, they were very much under one, under one command, uh, Mullah Omar, whom I met uh, on one particular occasion. They did listen to uh, the grievances, or what I told them were the grievances of the international community. Um, they did make progress on one or two to uh, topics after I met Mullah Omar. One was the edict, uh, or the fatwa, banning the cultivation and uh, trade in opium. Uh, and they did uh, accept the good offices of the Secretary General to pursue negotiations with uh, the Northern Alliance and with the other side. From Now, at that point, the international community was not united. Um, uh, and unfortunately, shortly after these two events, um, the the, the Al-Qaeda carried out its uh, attack on the USS Troll off the coast of, of Yemen. That changed things dramatically and ensured that the US would then side with the Russians and with the other opponents of the Taliban to pass the most uh, significant sanctions ever adopted against them. And that, uh, so uh, at the same time, I should say that it's terribly important to gain the trust mm. of the people you talk to. Mm. Uh, uh, and in the case of the Taliban, uh, I, I, I dare say that they actually ended up trusting me because in January 2001, I was told uh, by the Taliban or by the foreign minister of the Taliban, they would not be able to accept the good offices of the Secretary General because of the sanctions imposed by the Security Council against them. And uh, after a lot of discussion, they eventually agreed that they would continue to talk to me in my personal capacity. Now, uh, uh, that sounded a bit bizarre, but at the same time, I was able to, com I continued to carry messages to the Secretariat in New York and also transmit messages to both the former king and to uh, Ahmad Shah Massoud. 
so there are certain things. On, 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 the, on, on the other hand, um, uh, from what I've read in, the, in, in, in this report, which is very, very interesting, um, I didn't think they had changed that much. Mm. Um, I, I was surprised, in fact, to read that they seemed, and I may, be, I may have read it wrong, that the Taliban is still uh, forbid television and radio and dancing in the areas that under control. Well, that is indeed what they were doing before. I mean, the, uh, and that they haven't yet achieved full power. Um, I have to say that life under the Taliban, the way I, I felt it, was rather sad for the Afghans. It wasn't a, a terrible tyranny. Mm -hmm. It was simply uh, the feeling that, you know, you couldn't, it was full of prohibitions mm -hmm. and full of small commands. And uh, I felt, as I think your report points out, that except for this kind of approach, this kind of policies, the Taliban had no overall economic or political uh, project. Mm. Um, that they were just uh, they running it in a way, not so un, uh, in, a, in a much larger way, in the way that you point out in your report. But I think what's interesting about your report is that it, it has progressed to being more systematic, and, but that also that it varies. Like, would there be some districts where they're really strict, where there is no television, and other areas where the local people are less strict? So you do have, to take your example, television. Is that correct, well, Ashley? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, just to say, <clears throat> yeah, and of course, under the Taliban time, as I understand it, everyone hid their televisions. And I've talked to sort of uh, Taliban commanders who, who themselves violated rules <laughs> that they were, they were enforcing. But I, I mean, I would also say, this is one of the really interesting points that I find, is and. Zaif's uh, quote is correct. Mm. They they weren't educated. I mean, you get the sense having talked to some of these people. They really they didn't know how to govern. They, yeah. they were almost accidentally mm. capturing Kabul, and then mm. all of a sudden they were responsible for things that were well beyond, you know, what they would have learned in madrasa or whatever mm. limited education they had. And now I think you see a little bit more of. Um, I even interviewed a, a Taliban commander in Logar who said to me. No, we encourage the boys, you know, they can fight with us when they're teenagers, but they still have to go to school. And we have a lot of our boys in university in Kapisa and Kabul mm. because we need them to go to university so they can be part of the government. Mm. That's, that's kind of different. Maybe you want to I, I just wanted to ask uh, uh, Vendrell that you say that, uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure, but please explain it. When we went to Kabul in 2002 uh, and also before that, uh, Taliban on their way to America came to the BBC and they were talking to Americans about a big, big project, uh, Unocal project. Mm. You remember at least. Oh, yes, yes. How come this if they do, the didn't have any economy? Uh, yeah, yeah, any, any. Uh, they were not thinking about the economy, about the big projects. And also, when we went to 2002 in Kabul, they they introduced the new banknotes, which was actually started by Taliban. They, mm. So they were thinking about introducing a new uh, a currency, a new banknotes, basically, mm. and they were taken on uh, by by the new government. So they, they were there. Any <coughs> well, signs of doing other things? Well, obviously, on the issue of Unital, uh, uh, they they were quite very interested because that was a clear supply of money and investment. Mm -hmm. So it's not that they were opposed to all of that. It, no, I'm not saying it was that their project. Well, I think that to the extent that it might benefit them, they they would have they would have bought it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, but they didn't initiate it. They didn't? No. Yeah, no. Yeah. no. But I think Francesca made an important point, and Shukriya also touched on it, is that back at that time, there was one command, and they, there was allegiance to the emir, um, and it was absolute. Now, how many Taliban groups do we have, and is there really a, a, a unified command? And just one comment from you, uh, Frances, before I bring in, in, in Mark, is that if, with your experience as a, as a mediator, someone who's worked in Afghanistan and met all of the players, what would be your advice given the current reality in Afghanistan, how you actually bring the Taliban into the process? Well, what I think is interesting about the three-day ceasefire um, was the fact that clearly the Taliban leadership is in control of its forces. I'm assuming that the attack in Nandahar was mm -hmm. carried out by, by Daesh. Uh, I, uh, by yeah. Daesh. Yeah. So in that sense, I think it, it was useful. Uh, could they have carried it in longer I don't think you can keep a ceasefire for very long without beginning to break, uh, unless there is verification, mm -hmm. unless there is monitoring. I think it was useful. I don't think we should read too much into it, but I think it's uh, it's it's a good indication. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just just one side note on the um, the issues of sanctions. Some of you may have heard uh, Kofi Annan. Uh, make this joke, but that when he was Secretary General of the United Nations during the moment where the rumors were spreading that the Taliban, when they were in control, were going to blow up the Buddhas. So Kofi Annan was asked to go and meet Mr. Mutawakil, who was the Afghan Taliban foreign minister, to explain to him the gravity of this situation and the consequences if the Taliban actually went ahead and carried this out. So he sat down with Mr. Mutawakil and said, you know, Your Excellency, Mr. Mutubakil, you have to understand that if you blow up the Buddhas, there is going to be consequences. And Mr. Mutubakil says, well, what kind of consequences, Mr. Secretary General? And he says, well, for example, there will be sanctions. Well, what kind of sanctions would there be, Mr. Secretary General? And Kofi Annan says, well, for example, there could be a travel ban, which means that you, you wouldn't be able to leave Afghanistan. And Mr. Mutubakil goes, oh, but Mr. Secretary General, why would we want to leave Afghanistan? It's such a beautiful country. <laughs> to you, Mark. Were you at the meeting? Yes, yes. yes. Kofinan loves to tell this joke, and we laugh every time he says it. But anyway, it's a very Afghan joke. So there's almost like a decade between the time that Princess Fendrell met the Taliban face to face, and then you, when you were in Kabul, met the Taliban uh, face to face, and that that was quite a long time in terms of. Did you see the instances where they both were more pragmatic and actually kept their word once they said they were going to do, you know, X or Y? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's worth sort of just going back on some of the issues that Ashley brought up in terms of what governance means. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, because uh, there are areas that they control and there are areas that they have influence in. And I think it's uh, worth distinguishing between, mm -hmm. between those. Uh, and the Taliban themselves, when we talked over humanitarian issues, will be very clear where they didn't have influence. Uh, and what they couldn't deliver. Hmm. So uh, I, I think there is a, a more sort of centralized uh, discussion. Uh, various commitments that were made, including release of UN staff, uh, they were able to deliver on uh, almost straight away. Mm -hmm. So uh, there, there was, it, it appeared, uh, uh, and I know there's been a lot of discussion about Doha office, uh, at least good lines of communication uh, between Doha 
uh, and uh, and the, the the command structure. So I think this was the Taliban office in Qatar that was set up, yeah, yeah in Doha. Yeah. But for example, it was often said um, when mediators discussed how do we engage with the Taliban, there was this idea that let's start at the humanitarian end, let's have a um, a ceasefire or at least a pause so we can carry out vaccinations or let's deliver food and give us an example where you started in an area where they had the capacity to say they were going to do something and actually carry it out. Well, first of all, I think part of the problem is that there hasn't really been a humanitarian strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and having a ceasefire is perhaps humanitarian, but not necessarily seen as humanitarian by the Taliban or others. So uh, what we tried to do was to engage on very specific issues. Uh, and uh, one of those issues was around health and immunization, where they could deliver. Uh, and they've developed structures uh, that are involved in immunization. The real challenge is, uh, and I think one of the development dilemmas, is to make sure that there isn't a fragmentation of national systems of delivery. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the discussion was about their participation in national systems and accepting national systems, accepting health workers uh, as civilians, because all government workers were defined by the Taliban uh, as uh, combatants. Uh, And we had to make the case that uh, both uh, uh, health workers uh, and uh, and teachers were Mm -hmm. non-combatants in our discussions with them. So that was part of the strategy, but the rest was was also to safeguard uh, national health structures, to make sure they weren't occupied during times of conflict and abused as places of shelters by themselves or foreign fighters. And... uh, we measured those uh, instances, and we saw a major reduction in those instances and a greater respect for, uh, for the protection of health services and health delivery. So given what you, what you are seeing evolving on the ground and what you know, this latest report from the ODI and what the BBC had done earlier, what kind of approach would you recommend in terms of dealing with the Taliban in terms of a, either a peace process or sharing power with the Taliban or something which acknowledges that they're there to stay? Well, I mean, my first issue is that you have to treat them as a national movement and engage them in a national discussion mm. uh, because, uh, and to appeal to that, uh, to their sense of that. That's what they claim to be. They claim to, to want to have more national engagement. So I think that's the first issue. In the past, I think far too much of peace processes have been what I would call reward or incentive-based. And I think that's precisely the wrong way. Reward. Uh, in other words, you do this... And well, the PRTs that. were an example of yes. uh, a reward-based response. Provincial reconstruction teams. Provincial <coughs> reconstruction teams were an example of a reward-based response. And, you know, offering incentives for good behaviour or for coming into discussion mm-hmm. is usually not the way forward. So I think it is a matter of appealing to uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the nationalism of the Taliban to protect national structures. I, I would uh, uh, move from humanitarian to some of the bigger development issues, the protection uh, of the economy uh, through the protection of inter- uh, the power schemes that are going through uh, to allow uh, uh, Afghanistan's development to move forward. Uh, they can have control over the protection of infrastructure and they need to be engaged in, the, in that discussion. Hmm. So for me, very much the way forward is, is to move from a humanitarian discussion, which has been relatively successful, uh, to a, a longer-term uh, development discussion. And again, here, uh, again, my experience was that uh, some of the Taliban who were in government were very proud of some of their achievements and would argue that poverty reduction was better under the Taliban 
than it was uh, under successive governments since then. So there, there are people there because who... Because they could impose their edicts and... You know. Well, par partly that. Uh, 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 but I, uh, all I'm going to say is that it is possible to engage you know, in broader national dialogue uh, over some of the substantial uh, concerns and to get people to engage in concepts of poverty reduction, protection of infrastructure, mm. and, and areas such as that. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, a, there's a lot that we can, we can discuss here today, and I, I think broadly speaking, there's first of all the issue of if the Taliban are more and more setting the rules, as you said in your report, on areas like health and schools and justice and social policy, uh, we haven't discussed about media and, and any kind of democratic governance. But how does the international community, how do aid groups, both Afghan and non-Afghan, deal with them so they can have some influence on setting the rules? Because your report makes it clear that on, there's a balance sheet there. In some ways, Taliban make things worse because they are too restrictive and too conservative. But in other areas, they make it better. They make the teachers show up at school. But there's less absenteeism, and the students show up at school. And the school books don't get sold or go missing because they impose their will. And sometimes it's for good reasons, not bad. Then there is the other broader issue of where does this, how does this then move towards peace talks, where there's a recognition that the Taliban are there, their strength is growing, um, and that they have to have a pace at the table. But before we do that, I'd like to bring in you and out because sadly there's you know the Afghan level of things, and I think if it was up to Afghans, maybe we, the Afghans keep talking to each other. But sadly, Afghanistan in 2018 has even more of a great game than there was during the time, you know, during the Soviet, the war between the Soviet-backed government in Kabul and the, the American and, and Saudi-backed uh, Mujahideen and Pakistani-backed. And now you have the Russians are backing some part of the Taliban, the Chinese are backing some part of the Taliban, the Pakistanis are, the Afghan government are. Everyone has their own Taliban. So how does that, what complexities does that bring into the equation, Dawud Azami? Uh, Taliban now control more territory uh, than any time since 2001. Mm. And uh, the number of their fighters is more than 40,000, 40. And around 30,000 of them are in jails. In and jails? In mm. jails. And tens of thousands of them have been killed over the past 17 years. So it shows one thing, that uh, recruitment is not a big issue for them. They can easily replace at least the foot soldiers. Uh, but they have lost a few important commanders, uh, leaders over the past few years. <coughs> but uh, the unity and cohesion is still there. Yes, there, is, uh, there was some fragmentation when uh, the news of Mullah Umar's death was announced <coughs> in 2015. But that... Uh, uh, splinter group is very small. Uh, the number of its fighters is supposed to be in hundreds, not even thousands. But the main faction is still united. Uh, and we need to understand the Taliban system, the, uh, the allegiance system. So they pledge allegiance to their leader, which they call Amir al-Mu'minin. So it's both political and religious. So politically, they accept the person, the Amir, as their leader. So obedience is must, in a way. But it's also, it also has a relig religious aspect. Because they, when they pledge allegiance, it, it is a, a religious oath. So until the leader deviates from Islam, or he commits a major sin, you are supposed to obey the leader. And if you don't, you are committing a sin. So that's why it's, it's very important for 
foot soldiers and commanders on the ground to listen to the leader. Uh, if they don't, they are, they, are, they are in a way committing a sin, uh, let alone the political uh, violation. And then the governance system. The, the structure has been there since the start of the insurgency in 2003 and 2004. So it just uh, increased uh, with their control and influence. So the commissions were set up in 2003 and 2004. Uh, the number of commissions have increased. Commission is like a ministry. Uh, political commission is now based in Qatar since 2013. It is their foreign ministry. So when people like Mark or uh, Francesc or UN agencies or aid agencies want to meet the Taliban uh, or want their safety in areas of Afghanistan that are controlled by the Taliban, they go to their foreign ministry or political commission, which is in Qatar. So they have a military commission which appoints commanders, uh, which is in charge of the political operations from suicide attacks to other operations. A financial commission is like a finance ministry. It is responsible of collecting taxes, uh, collecting donations in Afghanistan and outside Afghanistan, especially in the Gulf. So that's how it works. And then the governors, which we call shadow governors in provinces and shadow governors in districts. So it has been there since 2003. And their ministries are just replaced by commissions. Uh, uh, and it's not really a shadow now, it's because uh, it, the shadow was when they lived in Pakistan, it, but they're actually there. In areas they the commissions, control, it's like, yeah, yeah it's, commission, it's a parallel system. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in areas they control, I mean, they, they, they are physically present there. But there was time when the governor was somewhere else, mm. but people would go to that place to settle a dispute or uh, whatever issue that person had. But when we talk about uh, Taliban uh, is a reality, they have been a reality since 2003 and 4. Mm. That's why this operation has been going on, US-led operation. I mean, they've been there. That's why the soldiers are going there. That's why America and NATO is there. But the because presence, it would be fair to say, is different now. Presence, yeah. presence has and increased. And participation and, yeah. and Pre governance, if you yeah, like. Presence has increased. Uh, and that's why the rhetoric has changed. So in the past, uh, the rhetoric was that we want to defeat the Taliban, we want to eliminate the Taliban. Now the rhetoric is that Taliban cannot win on the battlefield. Mm. So when you listen to NATO leaders, US leaders, and other uh, leaders, so they would say that, oh, the Taliban cannot win by force. They cannot win militarily. So that means that there is a stalemate, a mutually hurting stalemate. Uh, so that's why we talk about peace process and political settlement. Now everybody accepts that we need a political settlement because the conflict doesn't have a military solution. Uh, but uh, on what terms? So that's why we have the Trump strategy. Uh, they want to put maximum pressure on Taliban in four ways. Military pressure, that's why bombing has increased. Uh, the number of uh, US and NATO soldiers uh, has increased. Uh, the number of Afghan uh, special forces will be increased. Afghan government has got more helicopters and more sophisticated weapons to put maximum military pressure to bring them to the negotiating table. Because Taliban, as you know, as you all said, doesn't want to talk to the Afghan government. Second pressure is financial. That's why they are bombing these uh, heroin labs in Afghanistan. Uh, and they're also uh, targeting 
donations uh, that uh, go to the Taliban from Gulf countries and other countries. Third is to uh, delegitimize their war. So that's why we had these fatwas in different countries, especially the recent fatwa in Afghanistan by ulamas, religious scholars in Kabul, uh, that uh, suicide attacks are haram, they are forbidden Islam, and the killing of civilians is haram. So it is uh, an effort to delegitimize the Taliban insurgency. Uh, uh, and and the, the, the fourth is uh, uh, to uh, engage the, the, the regional countries and uh, put pressure on Pakistan to either arrest the, their leaders or uh, expel their leaders. Uh, but it, it hasn't worked. It hasn't resulted in, uh, in, 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 in a changed uh, position on the part of the Taliban so far. Uh, but this ceasefire proved, uh, and this is one of the achievements for the Taliban, this is what they have said publicly, that we have showed to the world that we have unity, we mm. have one command. Uh, so, so that's important for them. Uh, but uh, when it comes to ISIS, uh, the emergence of ISIS in Afghanistan in early 2015, in January 2015, uh, suddenly made the Taliban look moderate. Yes. <laughs> because uh, until that time, everybody was saying, oh, Taliban are radicals, they are uh, uh, friends of Al-Qaeda, they are hosting Al-Qaeda, and the rest of it. So with ISIS, I mean, they, they, they mm. became some yes. sort of moderate. Yes. And that's the reason that uh, Russia has established links with uh, mm -hmm. Taliban. Iran, which was yeah. mm. supporting the Northern Alliance in the 80s, both Iran and Russia were supporting Iran in the 90s against the Taliban are now somehow supporting or at least talking to the Taliban. China is on good terms with the Taliban, and Pakistan, of course, uh, uh, has been uh, uh, at least on talking terms to the Taliban. So they have four uh, countries in the region uh, that are uh, talking to them or have links to them. And all these four countries have issues with the U.S. So that's why the question that you asked uh, me earlier mm. about the new great game. Mm. So that's why the new that's where the new great game comes. So none of these countries want a permanent US military presence in Afghanistan. So it's not the UN, the US. Mm. The US, 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 US yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. yes. So, so none of these four countries yes. Yes. which are important players, all of them. So uh, it has another level of, of yeah, yes. it has mm. made the issue exactly. more complicated. Mm. Uh, so we were hoping that, well, Trump and Putin might become friends, mm. but it didn't work. Yeah. Oh, well, so it's still happening. Well, <laughs> don't don't, so it hasn't don't rule anything so out. I'm hoping that Trump is uh, basically aiming for the Nobel Peace, peace Prize. Prize. Yes. Yeah. So yes. bringing peace, peace to Afghanistan, Afghanistan and making yes. peace with Northern yes. Korea. So uh, the, yeah. the, the conflict is so complicated now that none of the actors, including the U.S., on its own, can solve the problem. Mm. So yes. it needs uh, the cooperation and collaboration of all these actors, Pakistan plus Iran plus Russia plus China plus the US. And, and, and that's where uh, the conflict is now. Mm. Uh, it's complicated, it's not uh, limited to Afghanistan, it's a regional conflict. And then uh, there are international actors, state actors yes. and non-state actors, ISIS is a new threat. So ISIS doesn't believe in borders, ISIS doesn't believe in talks, peace talks. Uh, ISIS is a globalist movement. But at least Taliban have assured these countries that our fight is limited to the uh, Afghan borders. Yeah. So we are fighting within the Afghan territory. 
we are not posing a threat uh, to other countries. Okay. And, and the second point is uh, about uh, the U.S. Now they have also changed their rhetoric that we want good relations with every country in the region and with the U.S., uh, but it should be a mutually respectful uh, kind of relationship. And uh, the main issue for them is the presence of the foreign troops, forces. Yes. Mm -hmm. So if that is resolved, uh, they say that we can sort out other problems. But that will also be a very complicated and messy process, I think. Good. Uh, thank you very much for that and for also for outlining this whole issue with the, the new commissions, if you like, of, uh, uh, of how it actually, it actually is, is organized. I want to throw it open to questions, and your questions will also convey what, what is also on your mind and the people who are online. If you want to use social media, the hashtag is Taliban, and ODI has their own um, hashtag address, which is hashtag um, um, ODI. ODI Dev. Yes. Hmm? ODI Dev. ODI Dev, yes. ODI Dev. So let's, uh, I'm going to take three to just get a sense of what's on everyone's mind. Please say who you are. Um, uh, I see some familiar... And okay, so there's three here. Okay, so yes, please. Two gentlemen here, and then. Um, um, my name is Jobit Nader. I'm the director of BOG. Um, I just wanted to say what's in my mind, actually. Yes. I have no, no, uh, That's question. the British Agency's Afghanistan group, yes. 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 Um, I think there is a risk of um, um, giving too much credit to the Taliban, um, especially and during the ceasefire, because they did come across as like moderate people who wanted roses and selfies. But the reality is that the day before yesterday, the Taliban leadership announced that um, all those people who actually took selfies, especially with women, will uh, face disciplinary action. Mm. And um, I think uh, the nature of the Taliban, they are, they are still uh, quite the same, especially if you look at the way they enforce uh, law and order in their areas, stoning, um, summary executions, um, they, ha they have remained the same. I would only repeat the uh, Afghan Afghan proverb uh, here is kham kham gashtan sayyad bahre sayyad which means that actually the fact that the hunter is bowing is not out of humility uh, but it is to um, or no no sympathy for the prey mm. to be honest um, uh, the the international community the Afghan government they should be really worried that um, the Taliban are expanding their control over vast areas of the country but with what, what you're staying with, I mean, does BOG, the, the NGOs who are part of BOG, are they, do they come to you say, well, the Taliban are the dominant force in our area, how should we deal with them, what would you recommend, is it safe, is it, is it the right approach, are you wrestling with these issues? Um, okay, well, the, um, the, the view that I expressed um, just now, I would say it's uh, strictly my personal view. Um, the NGOs um, and, and the charity sector as a whole, um, they, their sole purpose is to serve the needs of Afghans who are uh, mostly caught in, in the uh, conflict. And some of these areas, uh, they are under uh, Taliban uh, control. The NGOs have their own uh, ways of negotiating access uh, for humanitarian purposes. And a lot of times they have to uh, make hard decisions, and mostly because the interests of uh, Afghan people are at stake. Yes, good. Thank you very much. Yes. Is it? Gentleman here. Ah, yes, yes. Sorry, wrong way. Uh, thank you. My name is Bavin Vyas. I work at the Risk Advisory Group. Uh, at the which advisory? The Risk Advisory. Group. Risk Advisory. Um, it does what it says on the very tin. high risk yeah. area still. Yes. It is. Yes. 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 Um, 
thank you very much for your talk. It's a very um, uh, instructive report. Um, my question was really on uh, something that all of you touched on, was uh, which Mr. Vandrell said that the ceasefire showed that there is some kind of cohesion within the government that the fighters do. Um, there was some command and control. Yes, yeah. They, they do seem to listen to leadership commands. And obviously there is the leha, the code of conduct, which fighters have to follow. Um, do any of the panel feel that there are issues over which the fighters would not be willing to listen to the, to the leadership over? Hmm. And can that be a hurdle to any, any dialogue with the government or, or the US in the future? Okay, good question. And here, yes. Thank you very much indeed. Francis D'Souza um, from the Afghan All-Party Parliamentary uh, Group. Um, I have so many questions, I'm not sure where to begin. Yeah. But just to say, I'm very sorry, I haven't yet read your report, but I look forward very much to doing so. Um, what we've heard is that the, the, the political context is enormously uh, complex. We've also heard that the humanitarian phase is probably over now and the real development must begin. And one of the things I want to ask the panel is what kind of development aid, and I'm talking about really large development aid uh, assistance, would actually have the effect of creating a degree of stability uh, amongst the various groups would be acceptable to all the groups involved um, and which would create uh, a context whereby some economic growth could take place. And the reason why I ask is because recently there's been a report from a group called Afrobarometer, which has done meticulous research in sub-Saharan Africa, very meticulous research. And what that came up with was that if you can provide, if the government of the day can provide infrastructure in terms of sort of water, roads, sewerage, communications particularly, mobiles, that people on the whole you know, grow economically, as it were. Um, and I'm just wondering whether those sort of, uh, that kind of development aid is going to be really important in, in the present context in Afghanistan. Okay, good. So I will take, just take one more since, um, let's see, okay, in the back. Hello, uh, my name is Rabia Nassimi and I'm a PhD student at the University of Cambridge um, and I'll be researching um, on the topic of Afghanistan. Do you have Afghan ancestry or? Um, yes, I'm originally from Afghanistan okay. but born and raised abroad. Um, uh, my question um, leans on Jared slightly and um, I ju looking at the ceasefire and a, a lot of the social media engagement, I'm wondering how hopeful we should be about the interaction that the Taliban have had, both with the public as well as as soldiers. Should we see this as an indication of hope or whether we should see this as a strategic move of the Taliban trying to engage more with the younger generation, trying to appeal to them and sh showing them as relevant, and people who are quite similar and relevant to the modern generation. Mm. Is this something that we should be um, anxious about or whether we should see it as them trying to You think it's just propaganda, really, just to... I'm, I'm just wondering whether it could suggest them um, wanting to form greater ties amongst the community, because obviously there is a, a lot of anxiety and people are frightened about them um, more generally, but them mm. coming and being in the front of TV, Facebook, Twitter, everyone's feeds, is this them trying to, to form more connections rather mm. than... Um, solve question. some of the issues. Yes, Thank you. I might start with you, Shukri Barakzai. When you saw those pictures of the Taliban coming out and uh, appearing and holding roses and embracing the, the people they were just shooting out the day before, 
What did you think was behind that? Was that something strategic or was that just a really a personal emotional reaction by, by people glad that the fighting had stopped for three days? I believe it's uh, both hmm. because uh, pre-arrangements uh, was be also possible because uh, Taliban cannot have suddenly such a number of flags and stickers to put together. Yes. So, of course, there was a kind of pre-arrangement from my point of view. But meanwhile, it's also uh, shows the generosity of Afghans, um, like uh, the way the people welcomed, I mean, ordinary people. Hmm. We cannot inject and force ordinary people to go and welcome. So people on the street, they welcome the Taliban. Um, and of course, it was a two different kind of welcomes. One was inside of the districts where they always been under Taliban control, and another part was or kind of celebration on the big cities. So when they come just miles away from, um, let's say, palace where president is sitting, and while they meet uh, the minister of interior, uh, which is uh, he's the one that's leading the Afghan and uh, police at least, uh, that they are uh, facing every day and killing each other every day. I think this is something what might be also a two kind of message. One was like a political message that was, I believe also that it might be kind of pre-organized these things and I hope it wouldn't be a gift for Pakistan because of the uh, time for uh, the rid of uh, and not the assassination of the Mullah uh, Fazlullah also was happened, the leader of uh, uh, Taliban, Pakistani Taliban in Afghanistan. Um, I hope it wouldn't be a bonus for that. This is my fear. But uh, it's also about the people. Allow me to say that put yourself in a condition where Taliban is ruling or the Taliban in government is fighting with each other. Right now we are talking to a different atmosphere. But if I put myself on the place that people are suffering every single day, and they are losing their family member. You know, the loss of their dears are not any more acceptable for them. Mm. Or, the, or when we are talking about the control, actually the legitimacy in the control will come for the government and Taliban to deliver the service. And unfortunately, none of them are providing service for the people. But still, what is Afghans are thirsty is just simply for peace and security, to have peace of mind. And I believe this is the time that we should say Afghans deserve peace. I understood very well the concern of Afghans, ordinary Afghans in particular, but beside of that, I also understand the concern of those groups, which is they don't like strategically to see Taliban beside. Hmm. The game, war game in Afghanistan is not start with Taliban, it will not get ended by Taliban, unfortunately. Mm. It's more greater game with large number of players with different reasons. But what is important, the solidarity among Afghans is possible. And that solidarity and common understanding will may make a way for peace and negotiation in long term. Um, this is was my point of view. It's a very personal and I hope I could uh, share it <laughs> on the same way. <laughs> you know, and, and your, your kind of emphasis on the need for this, uh, and we're hearing that echoed in this, this Helmand peace march, which is now approaching Kabul. They're saying, you know, enough is enough. Too much blood has been, has been shed. Our, our blood is now cheap. I wonder if I can bring you in now, Mina, and to pick up on what Javed said, is to say, you know, be careful. Mm -hmm. this, you know, a few roses shared, a few selfies made. This is the same Taliban, and it's a Taliban we should be 
wary of, yeah. uh, dangerous. I, I, I would like to uh, make it clear that when I say that I can see a tiny, tiny light mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the tunnel, it wasn't because of the three days yes. ceasefire yeah. or because of the selfies that Taliban were making with, uh, I don't know, even women uh, on the streets of some cities. I was talking about the um, change of the attitude. I was talking about actually having this discussion that somebody is being funded to go and see what is Taliban uh, life under Taliban look like. Mm. I'm uh, when I'm uh, speaking about that, I'm speak. Um, I I do mean the the overall tendency towards peace, and including uh, the the peace march which started from Helmand and they are so much emphasizing. At least we reporters, we journalists, we couldn't find any uh, partiality on, on their share. Mm. Uh, to, to our eyes, I mean, unless somebody tells me it's otherwise, I do see that march very much mm. impartial. Yes. So, and, and weariness of uh, Afghan people as well. I mean, it is time for it. And if I go, and, and I am anxious, and uh, as uh, uh, Nasima Jan said, and uh, another, I am very anxious. And I, as an Afghan, I'm so used to lost opportunities as well. Mm. I don't, I don't believe yes. in anything so quickly, mm. and I don't want to build hopes because I have been hurted so many times uh, in, in the last, I don't know how many years. And if coming to the other question, hurdles. Yes, there are lots of them. Otherwise, they wouldn't have fight, <laughs> fought yes. with each other. There are lots of them. But the purpose of talks is to talk about those differences and hurdles and come over. And we, I, unless we talk, unless we communicate, we can't do anything. Mm. I mean, the one thing that I think it was a lost, uh, amongst the lost opportunities was the, the issue of justice. I, I Back then, I challenged um, uh, some international dignities like uh, Mr. Ventrell and Brahimi, that they were saying that for the sake of stability and peace, we forget about justice. Uh, we I, sh I no, didn't you didn't. I, I, I'm not saying. <laughs> but I was challenging people and back those days that especially Akhzar Ibrahimi, that, okay, let's, let's leave justice for later. We can't leave justice for later. Most of the time, I mean, uh, Taliban on one side, other young Afghan uh, people who are um, living in the cities and even abroad, they are still hurting because what they have lost during the fightings. Yes. If families, mothers, brothers, sisters, everybody have lost somebody at least. Mm -hmm. We have to find a way how to make peace with ourselves. Yes? yes? Mm -hmm. That is very, very important. And we Afghans, we do suffer badly because we, we are not in peace with ourselves. And it's not our fault only. Because, yes, some people say that, yeah, it's an inter-Afghan issue and Afghans should solve it. But, yeah, Afghans are different groups, different parties, but everyone is being fit from abroad. Mm, yes. If international players come to one page, then only then Afghans come uh, to one page. Otherwise, it's not possible at all. And the, the uh, question of need, we do need definitely, definitely, first of all, fundamental aid. We do not f need fish. Afghans, I'm sorry if I'm saying we, because I'm the BBC, I'm not representing Afghanistan here, but Afghanistan needs fishing, not fish. One thing. Needs education, 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 and fundamental services. 
a big percentage of Afghan uh, um, population, Afghan people, not only Taliban, are not educated to do anything. But they are very talented people. They are like everybody else. I mean, if you go around the, the different uh, countries around the world, you find so many success stories amongst Afghans. Mm. They have never been like that, and they are not going to be like that forever. But they need, I mean, I, 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 I just remember that I was interviewing uh, Mutaqi, and I was asking him why you don't have schools for girls. And he said, we are in fighting, yes? And they have destroyed school girls, and there are no teachers. How do you expect me to send girls to schools? Yeah. I couldn't say anything to him. I don't know if he was right or wrong or whatever, but yeah, I went to Kabul and I saw not even one break in my high, uh, left in my high school in the center of Kabul. Mm. So these are things that they, we shouldn't give them reasons to avoid education of girls yes, or yes. working for uh, women. That's the other thing. So what we need is education and basic, 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 basic uh, services. Mm. Thanks. Was your question answered? Because you had something about that you wanted to know whether there were specific areas where the fighters would disobey the leadership, yeah, so if I understood it's correctly? It's more about within the movement. Within right? the movement. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Lots of them. Okay. Why they are fighting? Okay. Um, I'm going to take some more questions, and perhaps we can c come back to the to the research because I think, particularly those of you who are working in Afghanistan, I think it it sets up new challenges for you in terms of how you work in the areas where the, the, the Taliban are actually providing basic services now, either working with the government or in areas where they're, they're basically in control themselves. So let's also try to deal with, with that particular aspect of this, this important new research. Yes. Uh, my name is uh, Masood Amir. I was working with United Nations together with Mr. Uh, Boden in Afghanistan, and I was managing the governance program from the United Nations Development Program, uh, mm -hmm. UNDP. Uh, my question is to uh, Ashley, what's the uh, point of this report? Uh, is this meant to raise awareness about how people uh, live when Taliban are ruling? And Taliban are not new to ruling, and they were ruling uh, for a relatively uh, stable period during the time they were controlling 90% of the territory and they had government, ministers, deputy ministers. But even at that time, when the facilities were there, girls were not allowed to go to school in Kabul and also in Herat, Kandar, and in, in different places. So it's not about the resources, it's about the ideology. And the second question is, since this uh, peace march is taking place at the time before elections, to what extent uh, do you think this is related to uh, consolidation of different ethnic forces, especially with the presence of Mr. Ekmatyar in Kabul and also Taliban coming? Uh, so does that pave mm. the ground for uh, more access for people in regions where they cannot go to the polls during the elections? Mm. Okay, thank you. And this gentleman. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Yama Helaman. Uh, we used to be colleagues with Masoud Omer with the UNDP. Uh, <laughs> I work uh, with reintegration, UNDP? They've lost reintegration their <laughs> of ex-combatants before in <laughs> Afghanistan and also in Nepal. Uh, so my question mainly asks, and thank you, Dojon, uh, for covering the very important aspects uh, of this conflict in Afghanistan. Without that, this discussion would have been incomplete about the great game and the great players. And the good thing about the ceasefire, I'm not happy about that the Taliban came to the cities, but uh, the players agreed to have a ceasefire and tell them, no, don't fight. So that's the positive things. 
And we got to the uh, report as about the recruitment of ex-combatants, uh, sorry, the Taliban, uh, as the Ojan also mentioned, it's very easy for them. I think the most important aspect is the economic uh, aspects of this, because uh, you might have seen in the rural area where the Taliban is under control of the Taliban, there is no employment opportunities at all. As a young person responsible for a family, you ha the only way you have to feed your family is through the barrel of the gun. And Taliban's are being paid, and they have a lot of resources, even internally and also from the outside. So have you noticed that kind of uh, incentive for the people? Or it was just the ideology that they followed the Taliban, or it was the economic reasons behind it. And uh, I think about the ceasefire, the three days, it was um, an agreement which was not coordinated. So the Taliban came to the city, and they demonstrated their power, as some people concerned. But if it was coordinated action, so we, as the, when we say the international community or the government, could have gone to the, uh, to the areas which was controlled by the Taliban and given hope to those people by providing aid, vaccination, or maybe any kind of source, or at least presence. If, if the civilians were encouraged to go to the areas, remote areas, and buy the local products and show the mm -hmm. presence and show the love. So those people who are uh, under the area of the Taliban, so they would have had the hope that, okay, there is people came to our area as well, and it's, it's a different thing. Good. Thank you very much. Asha, would you want to answer those questions? Yeah. Yes. Um, sure. I would say, the, I mean, the purpose of the research is, is sort of twofold. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to do it all of myself in first person was to really see how, how governance worked. And I think a lot of this, you know, it's not news to Afghans how this is working. It's been unfolding for many years. Um, but to outsiders, to internationals, to internationals living in Kabul even, I think there's very little idea about how this actually works. And it has to be seen and experienced to be believed, to see a sort of Afghan checkpoint that at 4 p.m. turns into a Taliban checkpoint, or to sit, as I did in an Afghan school, talking to an education monitor and realize five minutes into an interview that I was not talking to a government education monitor, but I was actually talking to a Talib. Um, who was explaining to me in very bureaucratic detail how he, you know, dealt with the curriculum and with, with teachers' salaries when they missed classes. So, you know, to get a sense of what it's like for Afghans, I was mostly interested in, okay, if you're living in a village under Taliban control and you're a teacher, how do you negotiate this? Um, what do you do? Um, and the one thing that sort of sticks with me is, as Shukriya pointed out, the absolute devastation and exhaustion um, I mean, the risks that people took every day who were caught between both of these sides were extraordinary. And, uh, you know, they're exhausted. I think a lot of people at this point don't care who wins as long as it ends. Um, and that's the position they're in. I mean, I was in Helmand three weeks ago and sort of driving out to Nadali and to Nawa, and I have never seen so much damage. There was not a single facade that was not riddled with bullets. There was so much airstrike damage. I mean, let's not forget that airstrikes have topped the level that they were at in 2008. So I would say whoever says to you that um, there's no more humanitarian needs is absolutely dangerously mistaken. I mean, the massive displacement. Um, and the fact that you don't have the levels of aid and the attention that you, you once had to, to the plight of Afghans. So part of it was trying to say, okay, these are the rules, and the report is very descriptive. It says, in education, this is how it works, in health, um, this is how they regulate electricity and cell phones so that you even feel, uh, you know, the Taliban presence in cities, um, to just lay out how this actually works for people, because I don't think there is that awareness. I talked to 
uh, people in embassies and expatriates and NGOs, members of BOG, who I would sit down with them and their Afghan colleagues. And of course, their Afghan colleagues at their home villages, they would tell me, oh, well, that's not how it works in my village. The education person in my village does this. But their international colleagues had no clue. Um, and I think that's really scary. And part of the report is meant to sort of say to the international community, you need to reckon with this reality. I mean, this has long been the reality, and now it's inescapable. The Taliban is sort of controlling the basic package of health services. It had controlled parts of NSP when that, when that was running. Um, and it's, it's fraught with danger, um, but it's a reality. So, so how are you designing your programs? How are you engaging with the Taliban at local level? How are you having these honest discussions? And I don't think they're happening. Secondarily, and this is a tricky, a tricky thing to recommend, but you need to engage with the Taliban at a policy level. If you care about girls' education, why aren't you talking to the Taliban in Doha about it? Why isn't there a track of negotiations about the issues that matter most to Afghans? Um, and the 70% of, of Afghanistan, you know, that is under, you know, where Taliban are openly influencing things. Why isn't there a track? Um, obviously, there's no track for discussion because there's no formal process. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it makes it, it quite tricky. But I think on the humanitarian side, and I'd, I'd welcome Mark's thoughts on this, there is room to begin that discussion. And of course, that would ultimately help build confidence, hopefully, uh, for peace negotiations. But you know, the very primary goal of the report is to sort of talk about the suffering of Afghans and all these kinds of things. And, and just to quickly sort of add, add one thing onto that. I mean, it was funny, I met with the peace marchers just as they set off from Helmand, and I, I never thought they'd make it. I mean, one was blind, one was in crutches, one was in a wheelchair, and we were sort of, uh, I was with a photographer friend uh, watching them set out from, from Lashkagar, and these guys are incredible. Um, they made it all the way to Kabul. Um, they went through, right throughout, really dangerous territory, and I think to me that's sort of one of the bright spots. I mean, as Mina said, it sort of has to end at some point, but you know, if it ends, it won't be because the government and the Taliban have unilaterally decided for their own self-interested reasons to have a ceasefire. It's, it's people like that that will hold it together and that will build peace. Mm -hmm. And the more that the international community and other Afghans can do to support that, the better off we'll, we'll all be. Um, mm. Yeah. What do you feel here? Yeah? Second. Mm. Yeah, my question was in regard to the yeah. Center, uh, yeah. Uh, I think that, uh, yeah. So the recruitment, how do they recruit? Yeah. Um, yeah. The economic... Uh, yes. I don't... Yeah. See, I just don't think it's economic, generally. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, I was also meeting with uh, a lot of very local-level guys, right? This is very ground-up research. Um, and they talked about very personal grievances about airstrikes, about being attacked, about being alienated from any, any political process, about being on the losing end of the bargain that was struck in 2001, essentially. Um, the jobs, there's no jobs, and you know, they, they can bring people, you know. Yeah. You know, everyone gives, every family gives a, a son to the Taliban so that they can have both allegiances but also money coming yeah. in. And the joblessness is also fueling it because there's no other choice. It is, but mm -hmm. I, I think the dangerous corollary is then that the international community with reintegration has said, okay, then we'll pay you to come over. I think that's not the solution mm -hmm. <laughs> necessarily, but yeah. Mm -hmm. I want to bring you in, Marcus. There's been this. this dispute, disagreement in Afghanistan for decades, it has to be said, with the UN, even during the Mujahideen times. The United Nations only deals with governments. We cannot deal with these rebel groups, be it the Mujahideen, and now as Ashley says about the Taliban, I mean, when you hear her saying 
you should be talking to the Taliban about health policy, social policy. Do the rules of the United Nations and all the UNDP people, can you do that? Yes. I mean, we have been mm. for the last four years. Mm. Uh, and in fact, have been having a lengthy discussion on education mm. and education policy, which is why I think there has been some change. I, uh, that, that, I think, became apparent at the Pugwash meeting about two years ago, that the, uh, there was a presentation by the Taliban of their education policies. Now, how far the policy discussion in Doha actually has a reality on the ground, I think, is, is, is by far the bigger issue. So you can have that discussion. Uh, but uh, and perhaps it just allow me to to make a couple of comments about uh, the dangers at the moment of uh, at the risk of contradicting myself of looking at it as a unified command and control structure because there's a great deal of variation and I think that's the issue that comes out of Ashley's report as well is that uh, the Taliban in the north are very different to the Taliban in Helmand uh, and. Uh, that's the difficulty in getting unified policies across. Uh, so I think we need to be a, a bit more careful when we see people responding to some core commands, not to interpret this as a sort of highly unified, well-structured body that operates the same way uh, 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 across the country. Mm. So uh, uh, it is possible to, uh, for the UN to enter uh, into discussion. Uh, I think that the the real challenge uh, and uh, the difficult issue to address is that a lot of the debate about development is always about more resources. Now, Afghanistan is probably on a per capita basis gets more development assistance than any other country in the world. Still? Uh, still. It's still in the top five. Mm. Uh, and it's really not a resource issue. Mm. You know, uh, it, it is more about getting education right uh, and I agree, you know, uh, and the, the Taliban, I, I think this is the other thing that we need to, to look at, is the Taliban will exploit the weaknesses in the system. Mm. Uh, and education, I think, is one of the more corrupt ministries uh, in uh, Afghanistan, uh, has the most money going through it. It's not lack of funding from the donor side. And the Taliban have been able to exploit that, mm. uh, as they do in other areas. So I, mean, I think we need to, to look at the policy discussion around some of the, the more difficult issues that exist in mm. Afghanistan. Yes, but I think this report and early reports make clear that, it's, that it has to be done. If you want to reach the people, you have to reach people who are in areas where the Taliban are exercising more and more, in some cases, influence, as we said, and in other areas, control. We're coming to, we've got about five or so minutes, oh, hello, uh, five or so minutes left, but we've, some very interesting questions have come in from the people listening online, so I'm just going to say them. Uh, someone who's, whose name is Anonymous, uh, maybe Mohammed Anonymous, or um, <laughs> if the Taliban is controlling more and more territory, does that mean its support from the population is increasing? Very important question. Or do people have no choice but to go with the Taliban flow in the face of corrupt, inefficient, or non-existent public administration. Another question, Irene, who's a student at Inalco, says, and this will be a question for you, Ashley, what does the Taliban demand from populations under its control besides taxes? Do they have obligations to hand over material support like food, medical assistance, etc.? Henrik Louis, who is a humanitarian in Kandahar and Lashkargar for the past three and a half years, says, what is the role of justice or the lack thereof in driving people into the arms of the Taliban, in particular how it relates to the Pashtun population in the south? And I suppose that's sort of similar to what the anonymous is asking, which is, are people gravitating toward the Taliban 
because a because they have no choice, or because the other choice is not is not good. In other words, the inefficiency and corruption and the absence of the government is what's uh, making that happen. Shukriya, what do you think that this does? Can we see this greater presence of the Taliban influence in greater number of districts? A sense of more support for the Taliban, or simply that people are living with it? I don't think so. It's a support. It's maybe more fair. Because uh, Taliban taking control and they uh, spread fear among the people. But also, uh, allow me to say, the corruption is a disease in government body. It's always been existed. Um, if, uh, after uh, Najib, Dr. Najib uh, time, I think uh, the Mujahideen uh, government and then later on Taliban and then later on the uh, Karzai and current one, um, it's, it's, it's the nature of third uh, world countries and beside of that, it's the nature of a country uh, and the war. So when the war is there, violence is there, of course, corruption is there. But of course, this is also maybe one of the issues, particularly for the justice, people are knocking uh, Taliban doors rather than government, which is uh, not really a good, but uh, this is how people are taking decision. When it comes to the ideology, I believe none of the extreme ideologies can exist and lead Afghanistan for long, uh, regardless of which kind of um, ideas it will be. When it comes to Taliban changing their policy and uh, mindset, it is possible because there's a no difference between uh, Taliban uh, slogan and uh, Mujahideen slogan. They both were staying there. Uh, they are uh, standing against foreign troops in Afghanistan. Once was Soviet and now the uh, NATO in uh, US allies. But uh, we saw that uh, since uh, Mujahideen came very close friend of uh, Russia, once upon a time, Taliban also may be uh, becoming one uh, good close uh, friends of uh, US and NATO allies. But um, what is important to understand the people of Afghanistan? From my point of view now, it's uh, it's... It's just wasting our time what the government say, what the Taliban say. It's the time that we have to listen to the silent majority in Afghanistan, what exactly they want, which kind of power they have, and how they can use their power on a peaceful way for peace and security and solidarity. When it comes to the government, I mentioned before that um, none of them are not delivering service. None of them are really providing proper justice. None of them are really not... Uh, taking care of security for the people. One uh, Taliban side people, which is they live there, they're under air attack, and uh, where is uh, uh, the government side? They are under suicide attack. Uh, so we can't say that it's secure for both sides. Caught between the two sides. Actually, what have you in your in your research about? Uh, is it are they being people are forced to pay taxes, which in some cases you call that extortion? Uh, anything else? You know, I mentioned about how he's handing over his son traditionally to fight with the Taliban, yeah. so the daughters to marry. What else is being asked for? Um, I mean, certainly taxation. There's a, a section in the report about that, but it's very relative. In some places, people are happier with Taliban taxation because it's less, it's more systematic, and it's more consistent than government ad hoc extortion. Um, certainly, they don't welcome taxation from any, any source, but they also compel certain behaviors. Again, women are not allowed to go to the bazaar or participate in public life, things like this. You're forced to go to the mosque if you're a man on, uh, for Friday prayers. Uh, there are punishments if you don't in some areas. There's a whole range of things that are asked for, and some of them are more subtle um, and insidious, certainly. Mm. I think with uh, Taliban judges, uh, 
obviously that's that's something that's been around for a very long time and it's sort of the Taliban trademark. It's one of the first things they introduce. Uh, and and pe they compel people to sort of adhere to their justice system, but that's one where, where there's just really nothing else in a lot of areas. Mm. It's not that they're supplanting anything, it's that they're filling a vacuum, I would say. Um, and certainly just because they comply with these things, I, I would absolutely agree with Shukriya, it doesn't mean they support them. Mm. Uh, when I tried to ask people I was interviewing about, well, how do you feel about the Taliban? How did you, do you support them? Um, you know, obviously with Taliban fighters, it's, of course they mm. did, but with ordinary people, I would just get these responses which ranged from bewildered uh, to outright hostile. I mean, one, one of the teachers sort of said to me, it's like, I want to keep my school open. I support Karzai, I support Mullah Omar, I'll support whoever you tell me to. What do you want me to do? Mm. You're implying that I have a choice when I very clearly have none. Um, so I think we also have to be careful when we think about support. Um, it's within mm. a very limited range of options. Very right? pragmatic, very pragmatic. Um, we're going to have, in, this, in the spirit of brotherly and sisterly relations, we're going to have a Chatham House moment now because we have a, a Chatham House question from, from here and we have a, a Chatham House question there. I might bring you in doubt to answer this one from, and I think we've, we've sort of had it answered from Shukriya Gareth from Chatham House asks, I'd be interested to hear about the extent to which Taliban governance at present has any uh, element of being done for international consumption mm -hmm. or is it solely domestic? Is it for Afghans or are they kind of mindful of... of the international partners, both for aid and legitimacy. Is that an element in it, would you think? Well, I, I think it's both. Uh, domestically, it brings Oh, sorry, yeah. I think it's, it's both. Uh, domestically, it brings them a lot of money. I mean, just from the taxation of uh, the drugs economy. Uh, it's like tens of uh, millions of dollars every year. So it's a lot of money for an insurgency. They were also taxing the NATO supply convoys until recently. So that was one of the main sources of income for them. Mm. They also tax uh, infrastructure projects. Uh, they even appoint uh, monitors. One of their own fighters uh, becomes uh, a monitor who gets salary from the contract, mm. from the contractor. Mm -hmm. And they also get a share out of that uh, contract. Uh, and then they also stop um, uh, lorries on the main roads now. They also tax uh, telecommunication companies, these mobile uh, mm -hmm. phone companies. So they have, uh, uh, the mining sector is another uh, sector which brings them a lot of money. <coughs> so governance uh, brings them a lot of money uh, to run the insurgency. But it also helps them to look uh, nice in the eyes of the international community that we are uh, looking after our people, uh, we are acting uh, like a government, and we are ready to govern the country. So it's also a hidden message to the rest of the world that we are capable of running the country. And the third reason is uh, uh, public support. Uh, so whenever they uh, control a territory, uh, they have to treat people nicely in a way. It's not only fair, it's also being nice to them. Otherwise, there will be a lot of spying on them. Mm. Uh, because any villager with a mobile phone can let uh, NATO or the Afghan government know that we have uh, a Taliban commander staying in this house or in mm. sleeping in this room. So suddenly you might see a drone strike. Uh, so they also, that's why they have relaxed their uh, uh, rules in some areas. Like in some uh, places, they don't punish people 
for shaving your beard. Uh, I mean, in the past, they were not allowing that. Uh, so they need, they realize they, now they, that they, they need public and, public yeah, public support. And, yeah. and privately, yeah. they say the Taliban leaders uh, they they say that yes, we made a lot of mistakes uh, because we didn't have uh, the experience mm. of governance. So they it seems they are trying to give the message that we have learned from our mistakes, we made mistakes, and we wouldn't be making the same mistakes again. Mm. But uh, it's also fear and coercion. So the more they increase their control, the more uh, people they would get. Yes. <coughs> From okay. every village they control would bring them like 10, 15 uh, fighters. Okay. And then the mistakes made in these uh, bombings when civilians are killed. So the family, the relatives might join the Taliban. They get angry, yes. So it's just, yeah. the, is, is, the it's motivations are different. Yes. It's not only yes. uh, jobs, lack of employment, it's also revenge, it's also religion. It's nationalism. Okay. Uh, so it, yes, it's, no, that's it's very. Complex, it's yeah. no, it's fair. It is. It is very common, and that, that comes through in your report. In some areas, the Taliban are putting pressure on people to spy for them, mm -hmm. but in others, this whole report is about how they realize they need public support, and to do that, they need to provide services. Um, so that's very interesting, President. President, what I could bring in before I take the, the last question here, with your benefit of having worked in Afghanistan for a long time and what you saw on the ground when you were there and saw both the risks the, and the opportunities. And now, what I think, I think Mina was right, there's a small, maybe small, but there is a little spark, a little light, which may, which may be extinguished or it may grow. But do you see that the, there is a, a sense of there's a way forward? Or how do you see this with long perspective? It's a very uh, difficult question to answer because, uh, what, what I, on the one side, I did say that the, the success of the three-day truce or, um, showed command and control by the Taliban. Mm. But we don't know for how long would that <laughs> command and control have lasted yes. had there been a decision to extend it. Mm. Nor do we know what the reaction would be if they entered into talks. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's a bit unclear. One issue, sorry to mm -hmm. in a way turn the, uh, the question, one issue that doesn't come through in the report, and um, because obviously there was no time, is the question, issue of corruption. Did you, do you get the feeling that the Taliban are less corrupt today uh, than the government? Than, or the, uh, because that in, in, in 2000, 2001, that was very important. The fact that there was a passive acceptance of the Taliban and places like uh, in, in the cities simply because there was less corruption than under the Mujahideen, mm -hmm. and I think I think uh, and we've heard in the in the process that there is less corruption now mm -hmm. as well compared to the government side. Now, having said that, I, I want to answer one question. It is, it's true that. As we, because we now want to talk to the Taliban, I mean, that is mm. pretty unanimous, we, are, we may have a tendency to improve their image. Mm. <laughs> uh, when we didn't want to talk to the Taliban, during the late 90s, they were terrible. And I remember being Thank told you. that that must have been the, the most dreadful job I ever had. It was not, in fact. So that we have to bear that in mind. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah, but just to briefly uh, answer, I would say, yes, of course, the Taliban are less corrupt than the government. But that doesn't mean that they are not have some elements of corruption or these kinds of favoritism for their own people or their own side. Um, and I think that's that's also important to remember. But I would I would agree. That yes, because I mean that's a new Taliban too. You know, the Taliban who banned poppy production because it was haram now have heroin labs. You know, they've realized they've become a little bit too modern, perhaps. In there, um, can I just see what the mood is here? Some of you I know appreciate may not want to indicate what what uh, what you think, but how many people here see a little a little opening, however small? Or yeah, how many of you have come here thinking? Hmm, Maybe maybe might get a little bit better, even if it has to get worse. Yes. How many people see a little bit? And how many of you are really came here deeply worried and continue to be worried even after our discussion today? We equally. <laughs> I think we're yes. Everyone's putting their hand up for both of them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> on the one hand, on the other hand, we're we're coming. Discipline is part of democracy too. But just very quickly, since I recognized, yes. Hi, I'm Hamid. I work at Chatham House. Uh, thank you so much for this wonderful, uh, I expect, the report. I haven't yet had the pleasure to read. Um, I think uh, my question is to kind of bring this home. Uh, I'm, I'm very happy that you, you commented on the difficulty of speaking to the internationals in Afghanistan and by extension in the capitals of the international uh, donor community. Um, but, but to what extent do you think that is... Why is that, first of all? I mean, we, we have a very vibrant... Uh, let's say, narrative-building um, scene for, for Afghans themselves. I mean, on, on the issue of the Helmandis coming to Kabul, I mean, all you have to do is just watch a 24-minute exclusive interview they've given. Wonderful people. I've never seen such, you know, such really wonderful people speak mm -hmm. uh, who do not come from urban centers. Um, so why is it so difficult for the internationalists to believe the Afghans' narratives? And why is it so difficult for them to listen? The fact that you've gone into... Uh, you know, a humanitarian or international whatever organization, and you have all these peers who are Afghans and working and understand the issues you're writing about in your report, and yet the international in the same office is completely unaware of. So do you think it's because there is this power relation that the Afghans have spoken to me about uh, that's very difficult to break? Um, do you think it's because the caliber of people deployed to Afghanistan from the international <laughs> have to be you know, either the rotation has to be, you know, improved or the training or whatever. Mm. So what is the missing link? Why is it so difficult <laughs> to get this through? Good last question. Okay. Um, this is truth. Well, as I was formerly one of those people deployed, I can say the caliber is obviously terrible. <laughs> as it needs to be. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know. I mean, part of, I, I wanted to do this research first person to, I mean, for ethical issues, I didn't want to ask anyone else to do research that was dangerous if I wasn't willing to. And, uh, and also to see the stories and because it's... But so you had to work with Afghans. You had of course. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, would have yeah, yeah. been nowhere yeah. without, you know, my colleagues mm. and friends who helped me who are these courageous Afghan journalists. But um, the truth is, I went and I'm, you know, I went and nothing happened. I'm fine. It's actually not that hard. Um, I think you have a mentality in, in Kabul. You know, there are no more international troops, uh, theoretically. There are no more PRTs. Um, if you work at an embassy, chances are you don't leave that embassy. Mm. Um, so I'm going to the access bit. I mean, yeah. getting the message across. Yes, the, yes. I don't mean the access bit. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. At this point, the rotations are short. Um, the decision makers are the ones that are going in and out, and they don't, you know, when I first came to Afghanistan, it was the place to be. I mean, I read volumes about Afghanistan before I went there. I took Dari lessons before. I, you don't get that energy anymore that people are really willing to invest in staying there and understanding the context and listening um, to different voices. I mean, I think there's no one Afghan narrative, right? There are a lot of competing narratives, which if you're in an embassy, they're coming at you from all sides because we want something from you, right? Um, and you're sort of a, a captive audience that can't get out. Um, so I think there is, there is that problem with lack of energy, lack of attention. And there's often a sense, I think, among inter internationals that this is a, a conflict, this is a forever war. Like, there is no end in sight. Um, even just a, two weeks ago, I was sitting in Kabul before I, I left to come here, before there was any news of the ceasefire. Uh, and someone at the UN said to me, you know, very bluntly, well, nothing's going to happen until the next presidential election. So, I mean, we're looking at peace and reconciliation, but, mm -hmm. you know, so there's this attitude of, of just, and I think that's the, the, the coming and going. But if the ceasefire, I'm, I'm sort of, the ceasefire is great, but like a lot of people in the audience, I'm very cautious that we make too much out of it. But if it's, if it's shaken people's attitudes loose on this um, within the international community, I think that's a very, very good thing. I think, Abhi, that was a very good question for us to wrap up our discussions here today because I think all of you here, Afghan and non-Afghan, know, have lived through the last nearly 17 years, which is not just a growing challenge to Afghans about how to live together, and as we've been hearing today, to live together with, with the Taliban who have come back. It's also been a challenge to the relationship between the international community and Afghans. And Hamid, your question has touched upon what has been a really important issue. And about, let's say, eight years ago, about a decade after engagement, when the international community sat down, people from all walks of life and said, well, how, how come we got it wrong? And we've talked today about how we got it wrong. And people would talk about it, and then they would come to this, what seems like a very simple, but yet a very complicated conclusion. We didn't listen to Afghans, and we have to listen more. And I think that is one of, the, one of the, what comes out clearly in your report. We have to listen to Afghans wherever they are and whoever they are because they are part of Afghans and the Afghan people. And I hope this meeting, this gathering here today of people from all walks of life, all just joined by their desire for things to get better in Afghanistan, is another small step toward improving this relationship because I think Afghans here have said this will be driven by Afghans but in partnership with members of the international community. And the international community now is very, very complicated. I wish we had more time. I wish we had more time to ask more questions. Shukuru Barakzai, Ambassador Barakzai, thank you very much for joining us from Oslo. I know that the sun hardly sets in Oslo, but you still spent a very long time in the day with us. We wish you the very best. Uh, to Mina and Daoud, my colleagues and friends, thank you very much for with your, with your Afghan observations, which are crucial. Francesca, of course, a longtime friend of Afghanistan. It's good to have you here. And Mark as well. Both of you gave many years of your life up to Afghanistan. And Ashley Jackson, thank you very much for the work done by you and your Afghan colleagues. And I think it's a very, very important conversation. And the conversation is just continuing. Thank you to those of you who followed us online and sent excellent questions, and to all of you here today. May there be a ceasefire in the joy and the, and the relationship among Afghans and non-Afghans as the, 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 as the situation goes forward. Thank you very much, and thank you to ODI. And please thank you to Virginia for, her very, for all of her excellent preparation for today, and to you, Sarah, as well. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.